Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! I'm telling you, my spider sense is tingling. Amazing Spider-Man number 129 mint condition. Worth a thousand bucks. Comic book. No, it's not just a comic book. This is the first appearance of a Punisher. Uh, sorry to interrupt, Willow, but it's the fat signal. How do I get it to work? Willpower. Like the Green Lantern's ring. You call it comic books. That's so cute. Cute. It's very rugged and manly. Just a bit geek, huh? I think it's sweet. It must be really hard when all your friends have, like, superpowers. You must feel like Jimmy Olsen. You can't charge innocent people for saving their lives. Spider-Man does. Action is his reward. Hey, Kiss Comics! Uh, hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Hey Kids Comics, the well-oiled podcasting machine. Because mm-hmm. that was very good introduction. Was it? I, I thought, thought it was fun. Yeah, yeah. I thought we were exceptional. Mm-hmm. You didn't do your welcome to another BBC production of a wonderful podcast that another we are producing another, today. Another Two True Freaks production. <laughs> hey Kids Comics. Uh, <laughs> joining me today is my co-host, Andrew Leland. Say hello. Hello. Oh, yeah. Uh, today, uh, uh, after our email section, actually, in which we uh, talk about uh, your messages to us, the interactive segment of the show, uh, we'll be discussing um, the two titles from Marvel Now, um, well, Fantastic Four and FF, its crossover series, uh, both written by uh, Matt Fraction, <laughs> with various artists. You know what this is? <laughs> this sounds like it could so be on BBC Two less at night. <laughs> or, I just, or BBC Four one. Or BBC Four, yeah. I so see you sat in a room. It's completely black. You're on a black settee. Yeah. It's a completely black studio with nothing else. And the spotlight's on you, sat in the chair. <laughs> and on the sofa, a black sofa, obviously you've got three guests. Yeah. All of whom are, are, are you know... Art students of some kind of media media pundits. Well, I thought yeah, uh, that kind of thing. Falls rather lacking. So I did Stuart McCorney be one of them, <laughs> wouldn't he? Stuart McCorney be one. Um, that the music critic from Cues on everything. Hepworth, David Hepworth would be another. Yeah, and um, the other one, Morley. All about Paul Morley would be on as well. Yeah. That's what it would be called. And that, and you'd be the whispering Bob Harris <laughs> of the show. <laughs> the old great comic test. <laughs> I would watch that show. So would our listeners, probably. Yeah, well, so the thing is, on BBC Four, you would have to syndicate it on BBC America. Yeah, yeah. And then across the world, and Channel Nine in Australia, they would have to show it as well, wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. And you could have a global audience of, oh, at least three. Yeah. Because yeah. well, it's a BBC4 art show. against <laughs> about three viewers. <laughs> You're very good at it, though. Oh, I think you should script one of them. Should I? And do, a, and do a proper introduction like that one day instead of just doing it off the cuff. Fair enough. Right. First, uh, our email section of the show. <laughs> Which is your section of the show, lovely listeners. There is no email tonight. From Luke Giaconetti. That's... Do you know why? Really disturbing. Go on, why? Because this very day... Yeah. I did learn that Luke and his lovely wife... Yeah. ...gave birth to their first daughter. Together. Presumably. <laughs> together, yes. Was it a joint effort to... But it normally is a joint effort to, to conceive the child, <laughs> not to give birth. No. So, congratulations to Luke. 
we'll forgive him for not emailing for the next couple no, of weeks. No, no, it's a bit of a push of an excuse. <laughs> He's got to, that's an awful lot of it. That's a great <laughs> excuse to go to to not email us in, isn't it? This is an excuse nine months in the making. Yeah. <laughs> so congratulations to Luke and the Giaconetti family. Uh, our best wishes on the arrival of your daughter, who you have not told us what the name is. So you need to tell us what the name is. So, um, with that, congratulations to young Mr. Giaconetti and his family out of the way. Our first email this night, if I actually put the right file on, is Civil War Part 2, or F.U. Mark Miller. Do you think you know where this email's going to go? I think it's going to be a very positive email. Estolling the virtues yeah, Chris of Civil War. Yeah, Chris tell us how much he loves Mark Miller. <laughs> It's from Chris Keith. Hi, Chris. Well, he likes him so much, he'd like to F him, so... <laughs> That's going to be one of those nights, is it? <laughs> oh, dear God. Greetings, Layla's. Hello, Chris. I, I, I hope you can say, accept some constructive criticism there, Chris. I think you shot your load with the title of the email. I think you should have, you should have buried the lead a bit and made us, made us wonder what your opinion of Civil War was <laughs> instead of just in the subject heading just saying screw you Miller <laughs> but do we need to read the email now? Oh, no, that's it, that's it that's a, oh, if, next email. If that would be funny if that's it he sent us that subject heading as in, I said everything in the subject heading <laughs> oh no he didn't Chris has more to say than just <laughs> I can't say it because we're a family show um, as I listened to part two of Civil War, begins Chris, I found myself getting more and more angry. Oh, that wasn't with us. Were we just bad podcasters? Wait, well, this is true. Compared to Mark Miller. <laughs> we just don't have that talent. We just don't have the ability to, to shock yes. by killing off a member of the cast mercilessly. Should we kill one of the cats, do you think? I don't know. I think that would be considered cruel and unusual Next week punishment. on Hakeard's Comics, Michael grieves over the loss of his father. <laughs> Thanks, love. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear God. I'm Mark Miller, Chris continues, moving swiftly on. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. To summarise, I feel like yet again a conclusion was decided and the path shoehorned in and massaged to fit that conclusion. It's always a recipe for disaster, but with an ongoing narrative, it can be dreadful. Where to begin? Number one, Tony Stark. I love Tony Stark. Iron Man's top five for me behind Superman, Batman, Captain America and slightly ahead of Peter Parker. Spider-Man would rank higher, but then he would feel guilty, take responsibility for my choice and go off muttering to himself, I am the spider. That was not Tony Stark in Civil War. That was an incoherent chicken way to write a character completely removing all motivation and backstory just because the writer has an agenda I actually heard someone say the other day that Tony Stark was a bastard because he was in business to make money of course he's in business to make money see that's how capitalism works comrade in between employing one third of the Marvel Universe he's saving the world as Iron Man which he does for free this is a bad guy Miller had apparently never read an issue of Iron Man or Captain America or obviously the Fantastic Four for that matter making him an out and out villain is just unforgivable but he didn't make him an out and out villain there were shades of grey in the story indeed there were several tones and I was changing sides all the way through Mm, there was was lots of different shades I felt there was Mm. 50 (laughs) 50 shades of civil war that's a different type of story (laughs) Turner Mark Miller would write that 50 shades of civil war featuring Captain America and Iron Man incest between Johnny and Sue as Tony laid pin me down with his repulsive blasts. <laughs> Tony was pinned down in his armour, unable to move. I removed the codpiece slowly. 
I was surprised to find a man of iron inside as well. Big, uh, man in a big suit of armour. Take that armour away and what are you? Naked, I hope. Oh. <laughs> oh dear. Number two, Captain America. Wow. Miller can bring the suck when it comes to Steve Rogers, can he? Well, following up what we just yeah. said, yeah. <laughs> uh, don't get me wrong, I love Cap in the Ultimates, as written by Miller. Beating the Hulk, beating the snot out of Hank Pym, ripping on France. What's not to love? Uh, the ripping on France bit. And, uh, I know it's funny, and I think I've said this on the show before, though, it's not a line Captain America would say. No, but every you time... You fought side by side with the French resistance. Every time you read it, though, you still laugh at it. Yeah, it's, it is still a funny line. <laughs> when we went to that Brian Hitch panel, when that panel came up, everyone laughed Yeah, it. yeah, because, like... Funny, but out of character. But, but funny, funny. <laughs> but out of character. And you're reading it going, I shouldn't laugh at this. Curse you, Mark Miller. Yeah, curse you, Mark Miller. How can Miller do that so right and make this Cap so wrong? Because in the Ultimates, he wasn't writing Captain America. He was writing a brand new Captain America that had never existed before. Therefore, Mark Miller could do what he wanted with him and it didn't seem out of character mm. when he was doing the Ultimates. Apart from... Ripping on France. No, well, see, you could argue that Captain America would say that. Oh, there we go. Coming at it from the Marvel Universe six one six universe, which is a I thought we were six one six. Oh, where uh, which universe. I hate. The normal, yeah, that's what I mean. Coming from the six one six universe point of view, that's right. a line Cap wouldn't say. Yeah. But Miller's Captain America obviously would. Uh, you said everything that needs to be said about the final fight, Andy. The middle of downtown. And I rip on Superman 2 for having that stupid fight in downtown Metropolis. Uh, Steve, I live in Texas, west of roughly Austin. Uh, miles and miles of nothing. Scrub brush, sand, nothing. Have a big fight there. Have a fight amidst the cattle, they won't mind. It is criminally negligent to have a dust-up in downtown Manhattan. And the cap I know would never, ever be negligent. Number five. I'm not reading that wrong. It goes one, two, five. I can only assume Chris had two other points that he deleted. Got rid of them, yeah. <laughs> Miller, in general, okay, I always said I would refrain from going personal when talking about writers, but rereading this book, I really want to give Miller the finger. Not sure what the equivalent for the middle finger is in England, it's the middle finger. Yeah. Means pretty much the same, it's universal symbol, yeah. isn't it? Pretty much. His politics read like a 19-year-old college girl's, uninformed and generalised. It's like he stayed up one night, watched Politically Incorrect with Bill Mayer and said, I can write about that. Oh, sorry. I can write about that. Oh, and the, thou art no thaw bit. Yeah, wow, Mark. I liked the 1988 presidential election, but referencing Lloyd Benson and Dan Quayle almost 20 years later? Gosh golly, is your pulse on the political heartbeat of the US. Anything else you'd like to tell us about our country that you learned secondhand from across the pond? Jackass. Should I refer to all Scots as drunk or heroin addicts? Why not? Yeah. Mark, thought not. Save your opinion for which Sean Connery James Bond movie is the best while you shoot dogs with an air rifle, sick boy. See, Mark um, Miller, he had it. But then he lost it, and he could never get it again. That's very true. Yeah. What about the Oscar nomination for The Untouchables? <laughs> I don't rate that at all. Um, well, there's a couple of things in there. I, I, don't, I don't know half of what you said, though. I don't know who Bill Mayer is, so I don't know what politically incorrect is. I presume it's some kind of talk show, politics talk show thing mm. from that title, I'm guessing. Is it like, have I got news for you, do you think? Could be. Could be. And I don't know who Lloyd Benson is. I think I've heard of Dan Quayle. I vaguely recall hearing the name Dan Quayle somewhere along the line, but I don't I don't know who those people are. But I'll take your word for it. 
Sorry for the elongated rank about mi- rank. Sorry for the elongated rant about Mr. Miller. It couldn't be helped. Thank you, gents, for pure excellence, and I look forward to Spider-Man Blue this evening. Yeah, right, isn't about that. It was better than Civil War. Chris Keith, PS Doctor Who mini updates. I'm through Age of Steel and really enjoying. However, I did have a question. Would Jackie Tyler can be considered the English equivalent of good old white trash? Uh, no. No. Jackie Tyler would just be considered a normal, down-to-earth, working-class girl. Uh, she was she was working class, but we're working class. Borderline, if you know, because the class structure still exists in England, despite the government saying that it doesn't. Mm. Um, yeah, because they're in upper class, so of course, yes, to them, to them it doesn't exist. Um, so no, I would not say that Jackie Tyler is good old white trash. She's she isn't trashy enough to be white trash. I'd say borderline. Yeah, she's the upper echelons of, of, of that, possibly. Yeah. But I, did, I never got that from her. If you want to see that, watch the British version of Shameless. That'll give you the idea of the British version of White Trash, won't it? Yeah. Oh, do you get Jeremy Kyle? Yeah, they have the American Jeremy Kyle. Yeah, but they have the American Jeremy Kyle, though, don't so much better. It's all ghetto problems, though. But that's, he won't have the British Jeremy Kyle. Yeah. Which essentially, that's what he wants. Um, what is the English term? Well, it used to be chav. But I think that's kind of fell out of favour now, isn't it? Oh, it's still in use. Does it? Alright, I'll take your word for it, because you're down with the kids more than I am. I am a kid. Yeah. Our next email! Oh, thank you, Chris. Thank you for emailing in. Uh, our next email is from Rob Stubbs. Hi, Rob. Spider-Man Blue. Short to the point. Yeah. This week. He's not shot his load too early. He's either. not, no. He's, he's not told us what he thought of it. No, no. He's just kept it generic in Unless the, he thinks in the head. Unless he thinks Yeah. <laughs> I'm blue, I'm blue, I'm blue, I'm blue, I'm blue, e blue, e blue, e blue. Are they not the words? No, no, no. Okay. Greetings, Mr. Leyland and Mr. Leyland, the British versions of Simon and Simon, except for not being brothers or private detectives or in California. No, but all three of those sound like fun. Yeah, who'd be Simon and who'd be Simon? I think I'd be Simon. Well, I want to be Simon. But we should toss a coin for it. (laughs) The opener with Michael doing his best masterpiece theatre bit was excellent. Well, we hope you enjoyed the encore performance yeah. that Michael did. Uh, tonight I'm bringing the random, continues Rob, because this was actually a story where I liked both the writing and the art. I'm often ill at ease when people decide to do retrospective stories because they will add annoying stuff. I would toss out examples, but I'll leave it to your imaginations instead. Osborne and Stacy sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. I, I thought though he was going to say F-U... No. <clears throat> I-N-G. Now that's with Mark Mill. Ah! And J. Michael Straczynski, apparently. <laughs> it was lovely imagery with Spider-Man leaving the rose, it being blown off, it falling, then it laying on the top of the water. It made me feel a little blue myself, which is what well-written comics are supposed to do. A comic book invoking thoughts of rage, because it's stupid, does not count. I totally didn't know about the difference in bridges, like most other people who don't live in New York, which is a lot of people. I think it just ran out of time to change things. I just spent several minutes searching motorcycle licenses, and what I found was that you need a license and also need to spend 30 hours running around on a motorcycle. Clearly, one of Spider-Man's lesser-known powers is the ability to have perfect motorcycle riding skills. The professor who interrupted was Professor Warren in the science lab. Oh, I did not know that. Good catch, Rob. I didn't catch all that pigging research I put into that show. Mm-hmm. Obvious one like that. Miss it. Didn't that happen? When did that happen with? Luke, Jack and Eddie caught me out on something. He didn't catch me out, but you know what I mean. I did a ton of research on something, possibly New Frontier. Mm. Literally a ton of it, and Luke wrote in and said, did you know that this was this? And I, ah, damn it all to hell! See, nobody's perfect. No. Least of all, me. Uh, Neither Gwen nor Mary Jane think too much of Flash, which shows how smart they are. At this point, Flash Thompson is Steve Lombard without the wit, charm, or personality. (laughs) 
Does Steve Lombard have any of those? Without Steve Lombard's wit, charm and personality, Steve Lombard barely had wit or charm and very, very, very low on the personality scale. Mm. Gwen is the smart and focused one with an interest in science, but still capable of going out and having fun. Mary Jane is the slightly unfocused one who likes having fun and is the life of the party. It's not that Mary Jane is stupid or dumb, but she doesn't have the same focus as Gwen. Both women are attractive and are interested in Peter, but only one of them is serious about it. I wound up feeling a tiny bit sorry for Harry Osborne. I also found him entirely creepy, just like his dear old dad, only a weaker, less impressive, creepy kind of guy. Hey, Pete, you want to be my roommate? Oh, is it okay if I date Murray Jane? Oh, good, you pick up some of my drugs? <laughs> I want to retcon where Aunt May reveals she's been discovered that she is bisexual and is going to hang out with her new love, Anna Watson, because Michael wants her dead. Then we can discover this is an actress who's played the role of May Parker and has cleverly fooled us all. I don't think it was cleverly. <laughs> the changes in the story you reference work from the standpoint that Craven is working as the orchestrator and aiming these villains as weapons. One of the advantages of this retelling is that what appears to be random is now something coherent. It doesn't matter to him if the Green Goblin is dead, but that he fulfills his contract. I propose a what if Craven the Hunter killed Harry Osborne. Craven is also using the subways to move around unseen, stalking his prey and setting up bulky cameras to catch Spider-Man in action. I want to make a Beauty and the Beast television joke about him and Vincent becoming pals who talk about their troubles over beer. I presume you mean old Beauty and the Beast and not the one that now stars Kristen Kruick, which I've never seen. Maybe a great show, I don't know. Uh, I thought this was a touching, well-done story. Since I listened to this the first time, I went back and read Hulk, Grey and Daredevil Yellow. I thought the Grey story was the most disturbing, with Ross being even more vicious than I thought possible. Here, take out these date prescription drugs your mother used to take because you don't want to end up like her with all your crazy talk. I've not read Hulk Gray in years. Mm. So we have talked about doing both of them on the show, haven't we? Yeah. After and then, the, uh, the after magnificence that, that was Spider-Man. We play. can do Captain America White. Yeah, when it ever the, comes out. The eight-issue miniseries that was absolutely fantastic and worthy of the... Uh, totally. The Eisner. Totally. Yeah. Well, are you recording this from 2022? <laughs> <laughs> Just fell through a wormhole that I did, bit, yeah, yeah. Should read it, it's great. <laughs> That's what we've done yet. Okay, well when I get into twenty twenty two I will I will be sure to read Captain America White. We're waiting for the epilogue. Oh we? Yeah, it's been that'll, that'll be on twenty thirty then. Oh, yeah. This email is the product of me taking several hours to try and think of things to say and my thoughts were aided by a small cat who helps by t- putting paws on the keyboard, including right now, as he sleeps on my hand as I'm trying to type. Yeah, cats will do that to you. RL Stubbs Jr. Thank you, Rob. Very much appreciated. Our next email is Spider-Man Blue and I am too. Yeah, it rhymes. Mm-hmm. It's from J. David Weeter. Hello, David. Who's now at Superman Celebration, Jammy Bugger. Mm-hmm. Are you not? No, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, that's a shit. Why <laughs> a are you not? question, wasn't it? Why are you not there, G? So why, why are we not there? Because it's in Metropolis, Illinois, and we're not in Metropolis, Illinois. Why not? I don't know. I have thought about seriously going, though, because it is always around my birthday. So I do try and need to make that happen one year. You should. I should, yeah. When, I, when I'm rich, I'll, I'll make that happen. It says, nobody, if anyone listens as a multi-billionaire, <laughs> we wouldn't miss a couple of thousand just to send it our way so I can go to Superman Celebration next year. If Tony Stark's listening. If Tony Stark's listening. And he could play a pay for the five of us, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. We'll go to Metropolis, Illinois. On the Quinjet. Be, on the Quinjet. Yeah. That would be brilliant. If you've got a private jet as well, <laughs> lovely billionaire listener, that would be fantastic. <laughs> Hello, David. I just finished listening to your review of Spider-Man Blue, and I'm filled with some mourning for Gwen Stacy. 
I have a unique and completely accidental perspective on Gwen since she had passed by the time I was of reading age and the marriage of Peter and Mary Jane was about to occur when I started jumping into the spider books. However, as fate would have it, a mysterious benefactor donated stacks of coverless comics to the gift shop of the American Legion post that my grandmother worked at. Though nobody ever knew where they came from, they were put on sale at 50 cents a book and eventually I bought all of them, as most of the older World War II veterans didn't have much interest in them, and read them greedily. Nestled in this batch of comic-y goodness, the bulk of which were from the late 70s, were several issues of The Amazing Spider-Man, including the death of Captain Stacy and a small run following his passing. Even though Mary Jane was the leading lady in Peter's life, I grew to know Gwen before I knew MJ, and I grew to love her. She was sweet, gorgeous, and way out of Peter's league, which is why I assumed the romance fizzled Betty Brant style and both moved on. It wouldn't be until years later I learned the infamous snap heard around the world, and I had a huge reaction to it. I remember becoming very nauseous as I read about Gwen's fate, probably because it was laid on me so matter-of-factly and so long after the fact. However, it wasn't until Spider-Man Blue that I could point to something and say that it summed up my feelings for Gwen and the fate that befell her. It's easy to sum her up as the girlfriend that died, and my age group would probably see her from that vantage point as they are looking retrospectively. To me, she was a three-dimensional character, and at nine years old, the ideal girlfriend I wanted when I became a teenager. Truthfully, she remained that ideal. So it was a gut punch to learn of her death, and I took it very hard. I know these are fictional characters which makes my reaction that much more special. This was perhaps one of my first true moments of emotion with a comic book, and it was powerful. There is a special feature on the DVD for the 2002 Spider-Man movie about the loves of Peter Parker's life, and one afternoon right after it came out I was doing some cleaning as I watched the feature. When it ended, the menu played some sad piano music as I continued to clean for a bit longer, but I was quickly overcome by the potency of Pete's romances, and especially Gwen. As John M. Wilson and I once discussed, we realised how horrible it is that she passed away without ever knowing that Peter was Spider-Man, and coming to a place of peace with that. That is a sock in the emotional jaw. However, last summer we had Gwen appearing in The Amazing Spider-Man, and the first shot of Emma Stone sitting in the courtyard gave me butterflies, and I knew we had a winner. Afterwards, I got to tell my wife about Gwen's history, which is always a bit of a special time, as I get to share a part of my world with the woman who is the best part of my world. A couple of weeks later, inspired by Emma Stone, my wife got a haircut that gave her bangs and began wearing a headband. Looks like I hit the jackpot. However, I do have a bit of a gripe and a continuity note. Mary Jane and Gwen weren't really close friends, despite many attempts to retroactively paint them as such. They ran with the same group of people, Burley, and spent most of the time being catty over Peter. I don't get why Mary Jane has been painted on multiple occasions as missing Gwen so much. Sure, I get that Gwen was a peer, and whenever someone who is of the same age passes, it is traumatic. But Mary Jane acts as though she lost her best friend, and that wasn't the case at the time. However, that's a small gripe, and this may be the longest email I've ever sent, but sometimes you just have to let it all out, and Gwen Stacy is a huge emotional touchstone for me. Thank you for your reverence you show to the character, and keep on fighting the good fight, gentlemen. Your friend, J. David Wheater. Uh, you'll notice that I barely editorialised that email, and we didn't even make any pithy or humorous comments, did we? Mm-hmm. Because we actually thought that was very well written and touching. So kudos to David for summing up essentially what Spider-Man Blue was and what it meant. And a big screw you to Straczynski, who after Sins Past blamed us, the reader, for his P of S story. And I really should just let that go, shouldn't I? Yeah. I don't get angry about comics and such anymore, do I? No. But that still annoys me. Not the story per se, although it was god-awful. But his reaction. His retroactive reaction to it when everyone starts dogpiling on it and saying this is crap, this is crap, this is crap, this is crap him turning around and blaming us for having this this idealised idea of what Gwen was yeah you know why we had that idealised idea Joe? it's because no one had written a story that showed her shagging Norman Osborn on panel 
Moving on. <coughs> so thank you, David. We, we appreciated that email. It was very touching. Our next email is from Tom Panarese. It's called Spider-Man Blue. Which seems yeah. to be a, a recurring uh, thread tonight. Hello, Leyland. Hello, Tom. Tom does the excellent Taking Flight podcast. And David does um, Pad Smash, which is excellent, and Superman Forever Radio. Mm-hmm. Which I always get mixed up with Superman in the Bronze Age, so I do apologise to Charlie Niemeyer. <laughs> I always get those two mixed up, even when I'm going through my iPod. <laughs> what should I listen to now? Oh, I listen to um, Charlie Niemeyer on Superman Forever. <laughs> and I'm listening to going, Charlie, not on this one today. <laughs> but that's because I'm an idiot and nothing to do with the work of those two respective podcasters. Uh, Tom's email starts I wanted to write in and say how much I enjoyed your look at Spider-Man Blue I've been familiar with the Loeb sale creative team through their Batman work and keep meaning to read Superman for all seasons but since I'm not the biggest Marvel fan I never considered picking up this particular series after listening to your episode Spider-Man Blue is now on my to read list my experience with Spider-Man overall is quite minimal. I grew up with the Spider-Man is Amazing Friends Saturday morning cartoon and have occasionally picked up an issue, but never could fully commit, especially during the 1990s when I just didn't have the money to commit to what seemed like some god-awful storylines. In recent years, I've led the Marvel Kids Spidey books that I pick up for my son and have also seen the spectacular Spider-Man TV series. In fact, I kept thinking of that series as I was listening to your episodes, and I have to say, I appreciate it even more than I already did. It seems that the team that created the spectacular Spider-Man cartoon were doing their best to stay faithful to their source material with some minor tweaks here and there. All the characters attend the same high school, for instance, and Gwen Stacy is very much a true nerd as opposed to Diane Court. If you don't get that reference, go read Say Anything and you'll know what I mean. I agree with you guys that the Face It Tiger moment in the Tobey Maguire films wasn't the greatest, so if you do want to see it done right, watch the spectacular Spider-Man cartoon. May setting Peter up with MJ is done as a running gag throughout several episodes, with Peter making the assumption that MJ is going to be a complete dog. When she's not, we get a perfect, modernised version of the classic Lee Ramita moment. Plus, there's romantic tension with Gwen throughout the series that is way more sophisticated than you expect from a cartoon aimed at kids. Yeah, we I loved Spectacular Spider-Man. We just stopped watching it. I only saw the first season, didn't I? We started watching the second. Did we? Yeah. I've got all of them, so right, I need to make the time to go back and rewatch all of that. Yeah. I'll convert them and put them on my iPod. Not sure they were as good as the uh, Neil Patrick Harris one. Get out of town! No, no. Shut the front door and other things that are going to date this podcast horribly in five years. Regretfully, the series of cancelled, continues Tom, to make way for Ultimate Spider-Man, which is entertaining, but nowhere is good. Had Spectacular Spider-Man continued, I would have liked to have seen how they handled the death of Gwen Stacy. Oh, well. Yeah, the Spectacular Spider-Man guys had a five-year plan. Mm. They had five seasons of that show mapped out, and then when Marvel bought Disney, they cancelled it so they could do Ultimate Spider-Man. Which sucks. Yeah, because it's a shame that. They should have just let Spectacular Spider-Man go on, but it, it'll all be money and licences. It's the reason they cancelled Clone Wars and are now doing the new Star Wars cartoon. Yeah. It's just the way of things, I suppose. Continuity nitpicks, by the way. A great section. I hope it becomes a regular feature. I have a few notes of my own. Not nitpicks, per se. But I did find myself jotting a few things down whilst I was listening. First, you talked about how there were oldies on the jukebox in the diner that played into several jokes and made the comment, this might not be a happening place for teens. Well, I'm sure the diner in the story looks nothing like the Max from Saved by the Bell. I can say that having grown up in the suburbs of New York City on Long Island, this sounds like any one of the number of diners in the area, which is full of diner culture. These were your typical greasy spoon restaurants where my friends friends and I would go to eat and hang out, especially if we had nothing better to do and had some money. The decor really changed, and while the jukeboxes, which were mounted to the wall above each booth, had their first share of contemporary songs, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary to see something that was pretty old, like something from Elvis, Buddy Holly, or Frank Sinatra. Not sure if they ever had jazz standards, though. 
Michael's description of Forest Hill sounds pretty accurate. I don't have much of a reference point since I've never actually been in Forest Hills, and whenever I think of Forest Hills, I hear the Long Island Railroad PA system telling me the only the first four cars of the train will platform at Forest Hills. <laughs> so Mary Jane, always knowing Peter was Spider-Man, is Leia telling Luke that somehow she's always known she was his sister in Return of the Jedi. I guess it's true, <laughs> from a certain point of view. Oh, I always knew you were my brother. Like, when I kissed you. <laughs> On the lips and slapped you the tongue. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and personally, I would have liked to have seen Jimmy Olsen go to Vietnam. Especially <laughs> if it was being written in our age of grim and gritty comics. Jimmy realising he's a remarkable killer and evolving, or devolving, into a sociopath who wears the ears of his victims on a necklace <laughs> around his neck would have been, well, either awesome or scary, because I can totally see Frank Miller writing that. What war were they in New Frontier? Was it Korea? Um... Because New Frontier is the 50s and 60s, isn't it? Yeah. So it must have been Korea then, it mustn't have been Vietnam. Yeah. So, so Darwin Cook did put Jimmy Olsen in a war. Didn't blow his leg off, though. <laughs> anyway, this email has gone on too long, especially considering I never actually read the material you covered. But I really enjoyed it and can't wait for the next episode. All the best, Tom. Well, thank you very much, Tom. If we kept somebody entertained through something that they'd never actually read, I consider that job done. So thank you very much for the compliment. Finally tonight, this one's called About the Mandarin. And it's from the mighty Thomas DJ. Hello, Thomas. Thomas does the magnificent Better in the Dark podcast with his friend Derek Ferguson. It's a great show. Check it out. And he also pops up on YouTube Freaks with me and a couple of other people who are just lying around one day with nothing to do and he wants to talk about Doctor Who. Fair enough. Yeah. Did, did, did he turn off the dark? Yes. And then got Very good. <laughs> Spider-Man Better in the Dark. <laughs> yeah. Would have probably been better than Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. Uh, I'm listening to your first Civil Wars episode, writes Thomas, and I think I may know why Michael kept insisting that the Ben Kingsley Mandarin was Southern American. There's a line of dialogue in the first act where Tony is analysing a Mandarin video. He mentions that the Mandarin's presentation makes no sense, being a melange of several different regional mannerisms, including phrasing phrasing from Southern Baptist preacher traditions. So there you go. Yeah, let's go with that. Let's All right, we'll go with that. He accepts that reasoning, Thomas. Good, no prize. By the way, as a major Iron Man fan, I really, really like it. I've always loved how consistently the series has its heart firmly in the Michelini latent era, even when adapting the Warren Ellis storyline. Plus some great Lethal Weapon-esque Tony and Rhodey buddy moving, and some truly great action sequences. And I thought this Mandarin worked in the context of the movie-verse. Anyway, back to you, Leylands. Well, thank you very much, Thomas. That was very much appreciated. Nice to hear from you. So there you go. Real Iron Man, Fen. 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 Proper Iron Man fans liked the movie. It's just I'd read a lot of negative um, criticism of it, you know, because that Mandarin reveal. Yeah. And I just wanted to know what Iron Man fans thought of it, because I like Iron Man. So maybe the bad reviews didn't come from people. I, I never saw it get a bad review. I only yeah. saw some people complaining about the Mandarin stuff after the fact. Right. And I, I suppose I can see the point. It's like if they turn the Green Goblin into a comedic force for good or a power <laughs> ranger. Wait a minute. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break because we've just nudged over the 30-minute mark and we'll be right back. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? 
to all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon, the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now, mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You perfects can't change the way I can. At least I'm the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you, for I am the thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more, and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatons, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. You're just a muscular freak. Blind or hope. Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him to the drain of all elemental life. So speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantastic Forecast. FFcast.libsyn.com By the way, um, have you seen the top 25 Superman stories on IGM? No. Uh, you'd be surprised at what's number one. Ooh, should we have a look at it? Do you want to you take a guess at what it is right now before you look at it? What? No. No, what's so funny about truth? No. What about the Man of Tomorrow? You think that's number one? I think that's number one. Have a look then. Okay, I go... No. That's it. The greatest Superman stories ever told, as by IGN. Right, let's have a look at this. Then. Uh, I wonder who's head of DC. Didio. Jeff Johns. Yeah. Number 25, Brainiac. Yeah. I am shocked. Number 24, The Mighty One, Commandy, The Last Boy on Earth 29. That's the second list I've seen that on. Yeah. I may have to give that a go. I think I may have all of Commandy somewhere. The Curse of Superman, Action Comics 9. Is that a Grant Morrison one? Yeah. Shocked. The one that you hated. Ah, right, okay, fair enough. Uh, number 22, Speeding Bullets. I actually quite like that. That's an Elseworlds story by James DeMatteis. Number 21, Last Son by Jeff Johns. Uh, oh, look at the time of Superman Returns, because Superman's got an S on his belt buckle. We don't bend over for the movies, though, do we? Ooh, no. Marvel do it just as much, so, you know. Number 20, on our special day from Superman 654 from Camelot Falls. Number 19, Superman Beyond by Grant Morrison. Number 18, Man of Steel 1-6 by John Byrne. Number 17, 22 stories in a single bound, Superman Adventures 41. Yeah, because I almost considered covering that. Number 16, Secret Origin by Jeff Johns. Just no. Uh, that's quite awful, that, isn't it, Secret Origin? We didn't like that at all, did we? No. The Mightiest Team on Earth, number 15. Oh, yeah. Uh, number 14, Must There Be a Superman. Yeah, I can go with that. Number 13, The Race Between Superman and Flash from Superman 199. Uh, uh, there are better Superman Flash races. The one they did post-Crisis was better than that. The Origin of Superman from 1943. 1948. Sorry, Superman 53. Up, Up and Away by Jeff Johns. <laughs> I mean, Kurt yet wrote it as well, but, you know. It is just heavily laden in favour of the new stuff, isn't it? It's a bird, again! That It's a Bird thing by Stephen T. Siegel. Death and Return of Superman at number 9. Yeah, I'll go with that. 
Number eight, for all seasons, absolutely. No problem. Number seven, Birthright. I don't think I've made Birthright top ten, but it's still very good. <laughs> Number six, what's so funny about truth, justice, and the American way. Number five, Kingdom Come. Isn't a Superman story. Okay, photos. Number four, Secret Identity. Everyone says that's good, I've not read it, so I need to read that. Number three, whatever. Ooh, number three! Told you. All-Star Superman's number one, then. If that's what you think. If that's not number one, and I've not seen this yet, Michael, vouch for me. Yeah, you've not seen it yet. Uh, If that's not number one, then All-Star Superman's number one. I bet you. Is that what you think? That's what I think. Number two, for the man who has everything, number one, All-Star Superman. Yeah. It's rather predictable, isn't it? Yeah, but I wouldn't disagree with that number one. In the modern age of Superman comics. In the modern age of Superman comics, if we're going, say, the past decade, from 2000, from the turn of the century, I probably wouldn't disagree with All-Star Superman. Of all time, I probably would put All-Star Superman in my top five. Yeah. I have to be honest. Um, he is my Superman. 12 yeah. issues, but he's my Superman. See, my Alan Moore... My, if I was doing my top ten favourite Superman stories, the Alan Moore story I'd have in there would be the Jungle Line. The Swamp Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a normal Superman story, proving that he could do them. And not overhyped like every other Alan yeah, Moore story. Yeah, there is that. I'd go for the Jungle Line. I mean, uh, it wasn't a bad list. It was a bit heavily weighted in favour of Jeff Johns, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Anyway. I think, I think he, like, bribes people. Whenever it comes to Superman, he's got to I'll, I'll give you like this much money. He probably does. If yes. you say nice things about me. I'm like, oh, okay, we like money. Give us all your money, Jeff. I'm sorry, Mr. Johns. I like money. I'll say nice things about Jeff Johns. I don't mind Jeff Johns. Well, I don't know. We all know IGN takes bribes anyway. So. Do they? Yeah. Is, this, is this a fact from, is from EA? Is this not alleged? <laughs> oh, so that you can't be sued. Oh, yeah, allegedly. Uh, allegedly. Allegedly EA. Uh, EA. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah, there you go. Cover your back. (laughs) Uh, And we're back, apparently. (laughs) Sorry about that, lovely listener. We just started browsing the internet while we were having a break. Welcome back, yes, to the third part of our look at Marvel now. Has there ever been as prestigious a book that got no respect as the Fantastic Four. Originally the flagship book in the Marvel Age of Comics, the FO had to settle for the flagship team book after Spider-Man rocked up and took that title. Then, when the X-Men's popularity skyrocketed in the early 80s, the FF had to settle for being the first family of Marvel, a title that pretty much means bugger all. Solo strips with the human torch never really caught fire, and the Thing, despite a long run in Marvel 2-in-1, has found the going somewhat rocky whenever he starred in a solo title. You're loving that? This is so bad. Created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby in 1961, the Fantastic Four ushered in the Marvel Age of comics and blazed a trail others could only marvel at as Lee and Kirby found their legs. New characters, concepts and outlandish ideas were a staple of the comics' heyday from around issues 40 through 80. But Kirby started feeling restless and phoned it in for a further 22 issues before quitting the book. The FF coasted through the 70s with different creative teams, some good, some bad, but never really regained their place at the top of the heap until John Byrne took over as sole creative force in 1981, revitalising the book and placing the FF back at the top. Boom! 
Byrne left acrimoniously in 1986, and again the book ploughed on through the 80s and 90s, resting on its laurels with varying creative types taking the reins. Attempts to upgrade the book to follow 90s trends varied from entertaining, Walt Simonson replacing the FF with Spider-Man, Wolverine, Ghost Rider and the Hulk, to embarrassing, yummy mummy Susan Storm Richards' 90s outfit needs to be seen to be believed, and the title was cancelled in 1996 in favour of the Heroes Reborn initiative were HOT! Image creators were given a number of Marvel characters to boost sales. When this fizzled, the boot was relaunched in 1998, and writer Chris Claremont decided to turn it into an X-Men boot. Mark Wade and Mike Waringo gave the FF one of those once-in-a-decade shots in the arm in 2002, which was almost derailed completely by then-current publisher and raving egomanic Bill Jemis, and then completely derailed by Civil War. Mark Miller and Brian Hitch took over for a run that Miller hyped up as being the best since Lee and Kirby and ended up being more like Rob Liffield, when neither of these HOT creators could be bothered finishing the story they set out to tell. Jonathan Hickman then took over as writer, and despite being incredibly critically acclaimed, this was one of the few eras of FF I could never get into. But it was successful enough to launch a companion book simply titled FF, which I always read as F off. Over the course of Hickman's sprawling epic tale, Reed Richards created the Future Foundation, designed to nurture the brightest young minds, including his own children, Franklin and Valeria, with a view to creating a better tomorrow. When Hickman wrapped up his run, it came as no surprise that the Fantastic Four was duly picked as one of Now's renumbered and relaunched titles. I really like Hickman's run. I've read it all. I've probably read of it now because right. I gave up on FF. Yeah, I never got into it. I can't say that it was bad. No, I can understand why you wouldn't like it. Why would I not like it? I, I, was, I wasn't saying you personally. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> I was intrigued to see your opinions why it never no, I, I could, I could see me. why people wouldn't like it. Right. And I kind of read it as, as the big eyed, a big book with big So concepts, maybe if I read it Ellis in the omnibus, and, yeah, yeah. I may like it more. Reading it as a monthly thing, I just I just could not get into it. I, I liked it because it had massive concepts and like Galactus killers and Galactus is already dead and there's oh there's loads of Reed Richards. Right. See, I'm willing to give it a chance because I know it's it's very acclaimed. Mm. And when I I didn't like it, I wanna it's not I don't like this. I couldn't get into it yeah, yeah. more than I didn't like it. So I kinda just drifted away from it. My thing was if a boot remains at the bottom of the pile when I get my monthly comic stash and I'm not bothered about getting to it when I've read everything else then it's time to drop that boot because that's what happened with Captain America Yeah, it was getting to the bottom of the pile and I ended up with two or three or four that I hadn't read as new comics arrived mm. and so it's time that boot's obviously not holding my interest well one of the reasons I kind of lost a little bit of interest in his run is when the, all that hype with uh, Johnny Storm died yeah wasn't Johnny Storm's death a bit naff I um I, I liked the death, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, but then I liked him in ripped to pieces. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but then they brought him back like a month, two months or so later. Because I, I was getting really into Spider-Man being put on the FF. I thought it was really cool. It was new. It was different. And and then all of a sudden Johnny's back. Right. But, okay. So all right. we all got hyped up and upset. Have but... we still got? All, have we still got all of that? Yeah. I may give him another go then. I know they're releasing an omnibus of his work. I don't know if it's a complete run of yeah. everything. But I'm pretty sure we could probably pick the rest of it up in the 50p bins, can't we? Probably. By and large. Matt Fraction, who was rapidly becoming one of Marvel's rising stars, was assigned to writing duties on not one, but two Fantastic Four titles. Volume 4 of the eponymous book and his sister title, FF. 
Now, I'll be honest, this initially turned me off trying the books to begin with, as I really don't think the Fantastic Four is a book that needs two titles, although I don't think any character needs more than one book, if I'm being brutally honest. However, I found the first four issues of both series in the pound bins at a recent comic show and leafed through. Mark Bagley was providing the art for the eponymous book, and it was some of the strongest of his career. Mike Aldred was providing the art for FF, and with his cartoony style, he was one of the few indie creators brought over to mainstream comics I liked when he worked on ecstatic with Pete Milligan. For that price, I figured I'd give them both a go. As with all Marvel Now books, editor-in-chief Axel Alonso has picked from a talent pool that is a strong creative idea for the series, and Fraction's take is to have the FF be off being adventurers in their own book essentially an intergalactic road movie, whilst the substitute Fantastic Four holds down the fort in the sister title. Both books are about family as befitting the FF, one the family you were born with and one the family you create. Fraction said his mandate was to invent wildly but with reckless abandon, and that he was influenced not just by what has gone before, but by The Incredibles, arguably Pixar's finest movie. Both books started intertwined, and in fact the first trade has the first three issues from each book, but quickly found their own identities. Perhaps the biggest feat Fraction has pulled off is that after the initial opening, both books stand alone but complement each other wonderfully. Fantastic Four Volume 4 Number 1 came out on November 14th, 2012. The cover by Bagley and Mark Farmer is one of those movie posters, typical Number 1 type covers, with the FF posing in their natty new black and white costumes. It's perfectly serviceable for what it is. I particularly like how Bagley interprets the thing, with his platelets defined to look like pectoral muscles and abs. Nice touch. Sue is rocking the shore to her at the moment. It's got a very Alan Davis vibe to it. Yeah. Do you not think? Mm. It's good, isn't it? It's... There's not really a lot to say about it. It's a typical first issue cover. It's pretty neat. The FF stand around and pose. New logo, new costumes. Yeah, pretty much. There's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't look as cluttered as some of the other now covers Mm. have done. Yeah, it's perfectly... Serviceable. Yeah, (laughs) it's a good word. Yeah. I love that word. Unstable was written by Matt Fraction with art by Mark Bagley and Mark Farmer. Paul Mount coloured, Clayton Cowles lettered, and Tom Brevert and Lauren Sankovich edited. Apparently. Stanley and Jack Kirby were first. Which indeed they were. That makes perfect sense. Franklin awakens from a bad dream in which one year from now the FF plus he and Valeria are in a spaceship being pummeled by cosmic rays. Uncle Ben is oddly human shaped. When he wakes screaming, he is attended to by mom bots, but you could really do with his real mother. No chance of that, as the Fantastic Four are 2.6 million years before now, locked in mortal combat with the jaws of a dinosaur. Reed gets his arm trapped in between the dino's jaws and it doesn't heal, rather the skin is all torn away and the muscle and sinew of his arm exposed. Sue throws an invisible force cast around it as Reed plays with Ziggy the computer, and as Johnny protests his innocence and Ben tries to hold the jaws of death shut, Reed activates the Quantum Leap Accelerator and the FF... Reappearing at breakfast time in the Baxter building where the kids of the Future Foundation and their guardian, Dragon Man, are eating. Or were, before the FF destroyed the breakfast table. Later, after the celebration of their return has died down, Johnny is in the negative zone, whining and dining his latest flame, Dearer Darling, and Reed is alone in the think tank, analysing his arm. He discovers that the unstable molecules that created his elastic physiognomy are breaking down at a molecular level with no known cure in any of the twelve known galaxies. So that just leaves the unknown galaxies. 
The next day, Reed informs the rest of the Fantastic Four of his new, spectacular idea. He's going to convert the Pestilence, a space-time vehicle, into a large classroom, and they're going on an adventure. And more importantly, they are not leaving the kids behind. More adventure, less action, is the mantra. One year. And with it being a time machine, they can return just minutes after they left. However, just in case something goes a little caca, a substitute for must be found. Just call for four. Just call for four. Fantastic four. Reed Richards is elastic. Sue confirmed from sight. Well, he's not elastic anymore. Johnny is the human torch. The thing just loves to fight. That was it, yeah. <laughs> Succinct, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, page one, the first page, makes it look like Fraction is going to retell the origin, maybe in a similar way to what Mark Wade did with Daredevil. It's only upon close inspection that the reader realises that A, the kids are with them, which adds a level of intrigue, because if the kids are with them, why is that? And B, why is the thing human-shaped? Mm-hmm. It's intriguing, isn't it? It is. And you think we're going to see, re-see that panel from a different angle or a different perspective somewhere down the line. I'll maybe just reuse the same page. That would work as well. Yeah. Because I wouldn't mind that in this case if this is a flash forward. Because mm. it does say one year from now. Yeah. So I presume this is them returning home. Is that one literal year? So you think that issue 12 will be the end of this storyline? Probably not then. See, the thing with Marvel times, when they do stuff like that, it does make you go, well, a year's just passed. Well, four minutes has passed. Oh, four minutes has passed, yeah, depending on your point of view. Page two, the recap page is on page two, oddly, and in this case does a fairly good job of bringing the new reader up to speed. As mentioned in the preamble, I couldn't get into Hickman's run at all, so this was quite necessary. Thankfully, the Fantastic Four is one of the rare superhero books still around that hasn't been bollocked up by continuity and such, that it's still easy to dip in and dip out and not feel lost. The Fantastic Four are still all the original team members, the mission statement of the book is still the same, and whilst the window dressing may have changed, the kids of the Future Foundation, Valeria Richards, the core of the comic is still the same as it ever was, to quote the mighty David Byrne. Mm-hmm. Poor Franklin. Page three, the opening page is actually Franklin's dream, which means the kid still has some latent mutant powers, which I thought had been expunged from him in an earlier story. And we can see on the first panel on page three, he's got his... Yeah, he's got that flash round his... Which means his psychic powers. Yeah, well, that's what he used to have. Yeah. A while ago now. Until Heroes Reborn. No, he, he lost them before Heroes Reborn. I'm sure he did. The Adam Hinn Heroes. Yeah, Reborn. but some of them, he must have got them back because the Adam Hinn Heroes return. Yeah. Because wasn't it Franklin who brought them all back? Yeah. From the pocket universe. Whatever a pocket universe is. Um, in your pocket. Yeah, it's his universe that you can put in your pocket. Little Polly Pocket action figures of the Fantastic Four. I want to play with my Jim Lee Iron Man, so. <laughs> my, this is hot. That would be pretty cool. I want my Liffield uh, Deadpool action figure cable. Uh, with the Liffield Captain America with a huge chest. Yeah. A huge bosoms. Just a huge Captain America with just teeny tiny feet. <laughs> oh. We topple over. He's <laughs> <laughs> the page three models yeah. of superheroes. It's like Red Skull would have a field day just making Captain America fall over. Oh, his tiny Skull. feet. Just massive stand boots. on his tiny feet and use it as one of those punching bags. <laughs> Just keeps bouncing back up. <laughs> Red Skull and Liffield are in cahoots. <laughs> Not the Green Skull. I don't know. No, 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 no. Um, given that he, mo- he doesn't mention this to either of his parents, I presume that nobody knows about this yet. I mean, Franklin may not even know about it. Hmm. From his point of view, he just thinks this is a bad dream, doesn't he? Um, from a writing point standpoint, it means Fraction is setting up two subplots in two pages. 
Mm-hmm. It's good to have subplots back. Writing 101. Yeah, it's good Matt Fraction. I've, I've decided I quite like Matt Fraction. You should redesign, man. Alright. Has he done any creator-owned stuff as well? To what, is that that's worth checking out? He's done the new one with Marcos Martin, hasn't he? No, that's Brian K. Vaughan. So it is. The Digital Only. Yeah. Which I do need to check out, because I love me some Brian K. Vaughan. And Marcus Martin. Oh, I think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Alright, okay. I may, I may have to investigate that. Um, the mom bots are scurry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I think? They all come swooping in. They're all like Herbies, but with Betty Brandt heads. T3000s. Yeah. And, it's, and they've even got boobs. Which That's is low. Just, just, just scurry. <laughs> Uh, lasers. Yeah, no, I wasn't fond of the Doombots. No, Doombots. Doom, yeah, that's what they are. The Mombots. There's your third subplot. The Doombots <laughs> in disguise. Yeah, Doctor Doom's taking over. <laughs> Doom likes Mombots. Do you think the Mombots took Doom in at night? Because <laughs> he has mummy issues, that's, doesn't he? That's actually a really creepy subplot when you think about it. Doom watching Franklin sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I hadn't gone down this road now. Um, Franklin's age, to get us speedily back on topic, has been the stuff of much debate over the years. Byrne clearly played him as preschool around three or four, but he had that adorable four and a half jumper. You remember that? He had a jumper that was the FF logo with the little half next to the four, which I always thought was hysterical. Here, in this issue, they play on that a little bit, and he's got one with a five on it, which cannot signify his age. He's more than five. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, not by much, really. Um, They're like seven or eight. Yeah, well, see, I was going to go by that. I mean, Valeria seems to be aging determinate. But, you know, getting hung up on the kids' ages and how aging works in the Marvel Universe is an exercise in futility anyway, isn't it? Just kind of drains the fun out of it. Mm. It's occasionally fun to go, oh, well, he must have been about 18 when this happened. He must have been about 20 when this one happened, blah, blah. But to actually sit there and let that ruin yeah. your enjoyment of the story. It's like in Animal Man. It's like, so how old is she? she he says five, but she's older than five. Yeah, and that buddy, his daughter was far more intelligent yeah. than a five-year-old. Well, Cliff certainly isn't aging anymore. Oh! He's <laughs> pushing up daisies, isn't he? Uh, so yeah it's it's just accept it and move on I yeah. think would be the best move of that one so The Simpsons then yeah let's not get into The Simpsons <laughs> The Simpsons 21 years of that show right all exists in one month to what 22 days yeah it's just it's very busy <laughs> 21 days uh, Franklin has a Lightning McQueen and Spider-Man poster on his wall mm. I mean Lightning McQueen isn't coloured red but given that Marvel are owned by Disney now I can't imagine that would have been a problem no yeah. but you know, and obviously there's no problem with them using Spider-Man. And you can watch Star Wars as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. Disney are going to rule the world one day. Whether <laughs> yeah. we like it or not. Yes, probably. Uh, page four five was an absolutely fantastic pre-credit bit, similar to what we got in Captain America last time. The FF are in the Jurassic Age being eaten by dinosaurs for whatever reason. Reed gets his arm bit, and thus Fraction sets up his third subplot for the issue. All of this has been done extremely well, never pulling the reader out of the story with a this is important neon sign around it. Sue wrapping an invisible cast around the wound sorry, was an excellent use of her powers, and amidst the drama, there's some, there's some really funny comedy. Um, Johnny protests too much with, uh, this is not my fault, leaving the reader in no doubt that it was totally his fault. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then Sue and Bell, Sue and Bell, Sue and Ben yell in unison, Shut up, Johnny! Which was... I, I genuinely laughed. Mm-hmm. I love comics that genuinely make me laugh. I think they're brilliant when they do that. Page six, the FF land back in the middle of breakfast, trashing the table in the process. It is, again, 
a lovely little comedy bit. The kids look like moloids yelling, The glorious return of the men! is hysterical without me actually knowing why, because I had no idea who these guys were. And Dragon Man reading a newspaper with his pins nez eyeglasses on, whilst being concerned about his muffins, mm. is likewise hilarious. You'll know why they look like Moloids and why they praise Ben. Yes, tell me. They are Moloids. Oh, right. And uh, when they were fighting the Mole Man, Ben saved them and took them with him and they joined the Feet Foundation. Right, so that's why they praise the Ben. Yes. That's for, I like that reason. Because later on in the issue, he's seen playing with them, isn't he? Yeah. He is like the big dumb uncle that everybody loves. Mm. I like them. You try and get the dumplings. I like them an awful lot. The, the kid. Praise the Ben! <laughs> they, they remind me of the Claw people. From yeah. Toy Story. Oh, <laughs> they really are funny. Strangers from the unknown. <laughs> <laughs> I have been called. Page six. I've just read that, so there's no point saying it again. Speaking of ages, Valeria comes across as older than Franklin. Yeah. It's Franklin who's curled up on his mum's knee, though. But Valeria's like, what a dunce. Yeah. Is Valeria? Has she somehow been aged? No, I thought she was younger than him, but was cleverer than him that she appeared. Isn't she cleverer than Reed? Or has the potential to be? Isn't she, like, super, super smart? Yeah. Isn't that the deal with Valeria? Mm. Wasn't she... The super smartest person in the Marvel Universe? Yeah, at some point, or will grow up to be. There's also... I mean, I've not read this story, because I think it was from the Jeff Loeb Fantastic Four stuff. I've got a lot of gaps in that area of my collection, because mm. it's from the mid to late 90s, you know, when you arrived. Yeah. Um, so isn't isn't there something she is the daughter that Sue would have given birth to when she was pregnant in the burn run from an alter- another dimension is that right? So our Sue miscarried right. but in another dimension that Sue Richards gave birth but somehow Valeria's ended up here isn't it something to do with that? I have no idea. And she was originally supposed to be Sue and Doctor Doom's daughter but that turned out to be a lie I've no idea. It's something like that. I know that Franklin has like is supposed to have superpowers in the future or something. Yes, because he's been in Fantastic Five in the Marvel Two universe with Spider Girl. Well, that and in the Hickman run, he comes back in time and says, "You will have superpowers." Right. I think I may need to read the Hickman run then because mm. you're, you're selling it to me now. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm doing a good job. You are. Yeah, you're doing an excellent job. Uh, page seven's another great scene. The FF have overturned the old bathtub fantastic car and made it into a table. And Reed, taking advantage of Ben playing with the Molod kids, is surreptitiously stealing a dumpling from Ben's carton. Mm. Fraction nails the relationship between the characters completely, from Franklin huddled on his mum's knee, to Ben, everybody's favourite uncle, playing with the kids, to Johnny's absence. Johnny's an early 20-something, I presume. So, of course, he's out with his mates or on a date instead of hanging with the family. But that's just a glorious panel, isn't it? There's just so much going on that you can look at, like Reed's arm snaking around and stealing Ben's food. And Ben holding the dumplings away from the mole-eyed kids. And then over here in the corner, there's two kids just sat on the floor themselves. I don't know who they are. Yeah. But And I loved that they've made a table out of the old bathtub fantastic car. Mm-hmm. I was, it was really good just, just lots, lots of lovely little touches in it it's really fantastic um, Reed is distracted from the conversation and disappears from the dinner table lest we think we're going to get a replay of Civil War this Reed does have a lot on his mind and apologises to Sue later on in the issue for leaving what's also really good about this scene is Sue knows when to leave Reed alone recognising the look on his face look someone who can write a real marriage yeah quite impressive oh look someone you can write the Fantastic Four well that as well yeah 
Pages 8 through 9, Reed silently analysing himself and his reaction is well handled by Bagley. In fact, Bagley's art, aided by Mark Farmer, I presume, carries uh, the issue. Especially this page, where there is no dialogue. Mm. So all you get is lots of shots of Reed doing super science stuff, analysing his arm, and realising there's something wrong with his tissue. And it's all done through the art. It's really good, isn't it? It's an exceptionally good page. Mm. You turn over, you get a splash page of Reed going, uh-oh. And you're like, oh, that's not good. It's all red as well, so yeah. Danger. Yeah. yeah. Subtle colouring. Yeah, it's really good. I liked this comic a great deal. I, I thought it was really good. I thought it was fantastic. fantastic. Uh, pages 10 and 11, Johnny's in the negative zone dating somebody called Darla Deering. Deering seems to be something of a narcissist as she's reading a magazine, Pizzazz, which features herself on the cover. Did you know who this was? No. Right, neither did I. So she's not from the Hickman stuff. She could be, I just don't know. Right, from later on, that we've, the later on stuff we've not got. Hmm. All right, fair dues. Um, uh, I do recall Pizzazz was a Marvel mag in the late 70s. Yeah. Featured pop culture articles on movies and TV and pop stars, et al. Seemingly, it's still published in the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. Had a long, successful run in the Marvel yeah. Universe. <laughs> I like those opening two panels with a smiley face covering an angry face. Yeah, she's hiding behind the magazine and she's just annoyed with Johnny. This was a nice little scene. Johnny's just a... Bonehead, isn't no, like the, the not proposal later on. Yeah, you think he's going to propose, and he gives her a ring box, and inside is his phone number. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I do wonder how much of this characterisation of Johnny was influenced by the film. I don't recall him quite being this er-headed before the movies came out, but it's it's a character trait that, that works on him. I suppose. Uh, whilst Johnny and Darla are busy eating, Annihilus is overseeing a war of some kind. Yeah. Which I thought was again. What's Pretty going cool. on there? There's a six issue miniseries <laughs> there, isn't there? Bendis is on that. <laughs> Bendis on the case after <laughs> Age of Ultron. He's going to write Age of Annihilus. Yeah. Fair enough. Pages 12 through 14, Ben drops by Yancey Street Gym and then he's filmed and put up on YouTube being caught in the middle of a Yancey Street prank. Uh, it's not called YouTube in the comic, it's called New Tube, T-O-O-B. Which is kind of interesting, because in Civil War they actually had real news outlets on the microphones, didn't they? Mm. There seems to be some disconnect with what they can use and what they can't use. Because they never say Facebook. No. They always say Faceplace or Spankbook or something else. Friend place. Yeah, friend buddies, whatever. Yeah. That kind of thing. Must be some legal... Thing I would have noticed on the uh, YouTube page, the hits go up every panel. I did not notice that. No, all oh, right in the corner. Yeah, yeah, the hits. Excellent. Yeah, so that's people just watching yeah. Ben fall through the floor in the gym. I presume it's going to cost him money to fix that. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I actually thought this scene was rather superfluous. The Johnny dating scene introduced a character who's going to become important in the FF book, Darla. Uh, the dinner scene set up Reed's concern about his arm. This felt like it was here purely to give Ben a spotlight scene and reintroduce the Yancey Street gang. Although the Yancey Streeters are given no context here. You don't really know who they are. I'll be honest, I think I would rather have seen a scene with the Thing and Franklin bonding over Franklin's bad dreams Mm. than this. Because Franklin and Ben have always got along well. Because let's face it, Ben is the kind of uncle everyone loves to have. Yeah. So, and I think that would have been preferable. Unless this is going to have some payoff later. Maybe. Because, like, why is Ben at this gym if it's in Yancey Street? Does he own it? Is this something uh, we don't know about, perhaps? Maybe he just wanted to 
Well, I was going to say he just wanted to work out of it, but they have a gym in the... They have a gym building. in the... Uh, Baxter building. That wasn't overly fun with this Yancey Street gang. I liked him in the, the Lee run when they were just a bunch of... And you don't see them. Yeah, you never see them. They're just a bunch of pranksters yeah. running around. I did, like I said, it's not awful. I just I just thought it was largely superfluous in the overall story of the issue, which mm. is a shame. Uh, page 15 reads, Conversation with Herbie is funny and quite touching. Although, I again, I've got no idea where the warship pestilence came from. I presume that's a, a remnant of the Hickman run. Could be. That we don't know about. Again, it doesn't matter, does it? No. All we need to know is they have this they warship have one, pestilence yeah. for some reason. The hows and the whys and the warfows really don't make any difference. Page 16 was utterly fantastic, especially if you have kids. Mm. Sue goes into the bathroom and wonders how the hell they've made such a mess of the bathroom when they were alone for four minutes. Preach it, sister. Your, your sister can trash that room. They've topped the bar. Yes, it's, it's really good, isn't it, the mess that they made of it. I really do like it. And then, when she goes into the bedroom to tuck Valeria in, Valeria is asleep with her knees tucked under her, her ass sticking up and her face buried in the pillow. That it's, is exactly how Adam used yeah, to sleep. Yeah, Adam, yeah. That's exactly how he used to fall asleep. Yeah. We would go into it, that's what he'd be like. His ass was stuck up, mm-hmm. and his knees were underneath him, and you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> Do you know we just left him? We figured if that's how he was comfortable, <laughs> leave the lad alone. So we did. Um, oddly, Franklin gets his own room, where Valeria seems to share. Mm. Which I didn't understand, because she seems to be sharing with a bloke. Yeah. Girls are supposed to have their own bedroom when they get to a certain age. Mm. Or share with other girls. Maybe it's a girl with short hair and has manly features. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> it's a man girl. Yeah. Okay. But, well, they are a bunch of alien kids. Yeah. yeah. So it's entirely possible, I suppose. That, that, that that's that's perfect. I like okay. the bit with Dragon Man. Yeah. Just good night, Mrs. Richards. Good night, Dragon Man. He's just out there reading. Is he in bed reading? Yeah. So he's in he's reading all the time. I like Dragon Man, yeah, this, especially in the FF. He just spends all his time reading. Yeah. He's great. He's really good in this. Um, Frank, page eighteen. Franklin has human torch pajamas. Mm. <laughs> which again I thought was lovely the FF would have merchandise yeah wouldn't they they're out they have no secret identities they've got to make money somehow mm-hmm. merchandise rights yeah. I'd be totally down with, with uh, that they let Marvel do a comic and about they let Marvel them. do a comic about them yeah That's for, I'm going to bet they let 20th Century Fox do bad films about them yeah yeah they probably don't like them see Reed Richards like blending in with the chair more <laughs> and more as he watches it going yeah what is this? Until he's just like a flat sheet of re riches on the <laughs> And then he just oozes his way out and yeah. Sue's made herself invisible and also left. And then Johnny's getting redder and redder and redder until he sets on fire. <laughs> and the thing just turns a bunch of chairs up. Until the surface sat there going, what? <laughs> that is not what Galactus looks like, dude. <laughs> but my powers come from the board, what? <laughs> Roll this drivel. Um... Uh, Reed does apologise for earlier he doesn't actually mention what's going on mm. which obviously will come and bite him on the ass later on but in fact it's a lot earlier than you think Fraction does not drag that out Yeah. by issue 3 or 4 I think Sue's figured it out Fair which enough. I liked because it shows that she's not stupid Yes. so that was good that uh, pages 19 and 20 Reed outlines the mission statement for the run ostensibly Reed doesn't want to be separated from his kids anymore and suggests an adventure through time and space homeschooling the kids as they go Sue can't help but wonder if Franklin will go for it what with his prophetic dream and all but Reed seems pretty gung-ho mm. why is it Johnny's ride the pestilence Johnny seems a bit mad that Reed's tricked it out did he not 
Is that yeah, how he right. came back from being dead? I was just going to say that because that makes sense. Right. Okay. I mean, I've never read it, but mm. it makes sense if that's right. Yeah. I'd, like I said, I presume it's just a remnant of the Hickman thing that obviously we've yeah. never read, so but it didn't matter. As with a good comic, it didn't matter that the continuity was there. Um, I actually thought this was a great first issue. I really, really did. It sets up the new mission statement solidly. More adventure, less action, as well as numerous subplots to be revealed slowly over the coming months. The characterisation is spot on, with the reader unsure if Reed is doing this to find a cure, or to spend time with his family, or even both. The art is equally solid. And this is a, and here's that word again, solid superhero book. It isn't a radical new take, or a daring new direction, or a death in the family. It's just a highly entertaining, pretty standard Fantastic Four story, revelling in all that makes the Fantastic Four book great, whilst quietly moving forward. It's solid. And sometimes there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Is there? Absolutely loved it. And it's got a letters page. One of the pleasantest surprises of the Marvel now for me, that. Because I wasn't going to buy this, was I? No. So only because I saw them in the cheapy bins, I decided we'll go on, pound each. And they've got the FF book as well, I'll give them all a go. So I got the first eight issues for under a ten of them. Mm-hmm. Good deal. I'm not sure if I was overly fond of that one, though. Which oh, one? Fantastic Four. All right. Oh, this double bill. Yes. It was the one I preferred. Did you? Yeah. Oh, rather than the next one that we're going to cover. The problem with the next one is nothing happens. Uh, At all. But we'll get into that. They talk. It? Yes. Well, not a lot happens in this. Not a lot happens in that. We still see him fight dinosaurs. And yes. That kind of sells a book to me. A fair point. <laughs> yes. Flesh did that in five pages as well, and that <laughs> yeah. was solid as well, wasn't it? So. Yeah. All right. Fair news. Fair enough. We'll, we'll get right well, into. Um, oh, go on. You feel free to disagree with me, but oh, I will. more adventure, less action. Kind of sounds a bit disappointing from a, a comic reader's point of view. Uh, do you really think there's going to be no action? Oh yeah. Well, yeah, there will be. But <laughs> I think he means less danger for the children. Yeah. Was what I got from it. Put, rather put than in action. A prison hall to when you get attacked by the dinosaurs. Yeah. Less action would be a rather boring Fantastic Four comic. Yes, yeah, very true. Uh, well, all it right. just turns into a science uh, comic. That would probably be quite dull as well. Oh, that could be interesting, though. It Reed all Richards sudden, teaches like, negative zone science. Quantum physics to you. Well, Hickman's run out a lot of science in, didn't it? Yeah. Isn't that one of its selling well, He should be teaching Fantastic Four in schools in totally. science lessons. I, I mean, totally agree with that. If history are doing bloody Alan Moore stories, which are historically inaccurate anyway, <laughs> you should be t- teaching Fantastic Four in science. You're not letting that go, are you? No, I'm not. <laughs> It's like, remember when we did Judas Contract? Yeah. And we, we, we pointed out the, the historical inaccuracy, although there was a slight possibility we found a loophole, didn't we, mm. of a British army colonel being in Vietnam. Yeah. And we both ultimately said, well, ultimately, this isn't pretending to be historically accurate, mm-hmm. so we'll give it a pass, and we'll just let it go. And we'll, we did find a real-life reason that there could have been British army personnel in Nam, didn't we? Yeah. And we said, all right, that'll do. We'll accept that. The the Alan Moore thing, why do you not... Does that not fall under the same category? Well, no, because I'm pretty... He, he's doing a historical story about Jack the Ripper. So is this From Hell? Yes. Because I've never read From Hell. Yes, and then just completely rewrites it and makes his own story out of it. Right, okay. Yeah. So basically it's the inglorious bastards of comic books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, okay, fair enough. All right, all right. Jack the Ripper was killed in a cinema explosion. <laughs> Alright, fair enough. And Hitler was killed by Brad Pitt. Yeah, right. I'm down with that. Alright, fair enough. 
Uh, FF Volume 2 Number 1 came out on November 28th, 2012. It has a cover by Mike Alred of Ant-Man, Medusa, She-Hulk and Darla Deering in a Thing exoskeleton. It's kind of kooky, as evinced by its tagline, The World's Nowest Comic Magazine. Mm. I'm getting the feeling you didn't like this cover. I wasn't overly fond with Mike Alred's art. Hmm? I'm used, I, I do like it, but there's something... But you didn't like it here. Like Neil Adams' recent artwork, it's good, it's serviceable, and it looks neat until you realise there's something a little bit off with it that you just can't quite work out. Alright, fair enough. Okay. Uh, Parts of a Hole was written by Matt Fraction, with art and colour by Michael and Laura Allred. Letters were again by Clayton Klaus, and again it was edited by Tom Brevert and Lauren Sankovich. Who coloured it? Oh, Laura Allred, I've already said. Duh! Who coloured it again? Uh, Laura Allred, <laughs> I believe, according to these credits. Um, Med- Medusalith Amaquelin? How long has that been Medusa? What was wrong with just calling it Medusa? Well, they have done it's at the bottom. I know. Just leave her as Medusa. Following on from the end of Fantastic Four number one, Reed Richards contacts Scott Lang, a.k.a. Ant-Man, regarding his idea of having a replacement Fantastic Four whilst they are away, even if they only plan on being away for four minutes. Susan Storm Richards approaches Medusa of the Inhumans with the same offer. The Thing rocks up to Jennifer Walters, a.k.a. She-Hulk, as his replacement, and Johnny beds the person he was going to ask, Darla Deering, and forgets all about why he was really there in the first place. Later at the Baxter building, Ant-Man rejects the offer out of hand. After losing his daughter, Scott Lang can't conceive of looking after children. Reed speaks to him in the think tank, and Scott recognises the images on the screen, and Reed explains his illness. He explains that the educational aspect is a semi-sham, that he's actually looking for a cure that does not exist in this universe, but may exist in a different universe, and is confident he'll find it. And did he think that Scott would benefit in some form from being surrounded by gifted children that need him? Yes, Reed did. After further thought, Scott, She-Hulk and Medusa talk to the gifted kids of the Future Foundation, including Dragon Man, who is neither, and ask them to explain what the Future Foundation is all about. Synopsis-wise, there wasn't really a lot to that, was there? Mm-hmm. Um, I do like that the splash, the splash page, the recap page on this tells us who all the kids are, mm. which was slightly lacking in, um, in Fantastic Four. But not Four. all of them. Is and that it, not all of them? I'm pretty sure there's more. And it even introduces a couple of them. Yeah. Well, there's Alex Power, who used to be in the Power Pack. There's Leech, Artie Maddox, Bentley 23, Dragon Man Onum, Vil Wu, Mick Court, Turg and Tongue. Which <laughs> meant nothing to me, largely. I think I vaguely recalled Artie Maddox from somewhere. And, and obviously I knew who Alex Power was, but... By and large, they meant nothing to me. Uh, structure of this issue was marvellous, which I obviously butchered for the synopsis. The issue ends with Scott Lang asking for the children to explain what the Future Foundation means to them. And the issue starts with Valen Franklin answering his question. And the rest of the issue is intercut with the kids' responses. It's a good idea, because otherwise this is an issue of Reed trying to console the man who's lost his daughter, and the team asking if others will replace them for four whole minutes. I can't imagine that would have made for an interesting issue. Because, mm. to be honest, the kids' stuff is the strongest in the story, isn't it? Yeah. Some of the kids' stuff is brilliant. Page yeah. two. The art on page two. The art on page two is brilliant. That is totally your brother and sister, isn't it? Okay, yeah. Just taking them... I mean, look at the art, though. That's Both Adam's a bit younger, though, yeah. than he is now, but that's totally your sister. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Um, 
page two just has Franklin goofing off whilst Valeria is trying to give a serious answer to the question. What I particularly like about this, if you read the issue and then turn back to page one, you can read the whole thing again from a different perspective. So I did quite like that. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Did you notice that? I did, yeah. I thought that was quite clever. See, this is why I mentioned that wondering about ageing in the Marvel Universe is ultimately pointless. When I was reading Iron Man regularly, back in the Michelini, Leighton, Ramita stuff, Scott Lang's daughter was about eight or so. Looking at the panel on page four where she's dead in his arm, she looks about 18. Mm. But Franklin was about five or six then, so he'd be about 16 or so now. But clearly he's only eight. Yeah. Again, best not to think about it. Scott Lang looks alive and healthy. Was Scott Lang dead? Yes. Was he? Bendis mercilessly. Did he really? Bendis killed somebody. I'm shocked. Yeah. Shocked, I tell you. uh, Did he say not like this? Well, (laughs) it was in Avengers Disassembled. Happened quickly. Unceremoniously. Like a Jeff Loeb killing. (laughs) Jeff Loeb normally kills people that stay dead, though, doesn't he? Okay, yeah. I guess. All of the people Bendis killed seem to come back. Isn't the Wasp back now as well? Um, when did she die? I'm sure she died in Avengers as well. In Gi- Avengers Assembled. Giant comic. man bit her head off. Yes, and spat it out. Yeah. Or maybe Spider-Man killed her, because, you know, spiders are the natural enemy of wasps. Yeah. If, you know, they were real. Uh, Reed's discomfort at trying to talk to Scott about the death of his daughter is actually quite well handled, because he comes across as being a bit stilted and uncomfortable, mm. which was realistic. This isn't, you know, this isn't... Reed's comfort zone, is it? Hmm. He quickly changes the subject to talk about science because he's much more comfortable with that. Yeah. Um, page six, Bentley 23 and Dragon Man's page is just hysterical. Yeah. Again, Dragon Man's just e- e- reading. I-, I have no idea of Bentley 23, but apparently he's cloned from a supervillain and keeps talking about taking over the world. Mm-hmm. It was actually quite funny, I thought. Dragon Man's constant admonishing him is also very funny. Oh, there's like so many races to uh, subjugate Bentley. <laughs> Sorry. But he does that all the way through. Yeah. I am Bentley 666, Lord and Master of this world and all others. Kneel before me and perhaps in my mercy I shall. Bentley. I am Bentley. <laughs> and? I'm sorry I commanded you to kneel. I was close from a supervillain, you know. It's in my bones. And then he does the subjugate bit that Michael just mentioned that's funny. And then the last panel's hysterical. I am neither dragon nor man. Actually, I am an android. (laughs) (laughs) I did genuinely laugh at a lot of the kids' stuff. Uh, I do like that Scott makes everyone wear a name badge. He knows who everyone is. Uh, page 7 Aldrin's art is cartoony but this is a great almost splash of Sue using her invisible force field to walk up to Attilan home of the Inhuman which is hovering over Manhattan the backdrop of New York from a great height and the fact that they're above aeroplanes and helicopters makes it actually a very stunning visual nice to see Crystal and Lockjaw again what did you think of that? I liked it it's a great piece of art isn't it? Mm -hmm. I really like it I love that they're above an aeroplane and Sue's walked up there. And it's not like it's just above an aeroplane, it's pretty low down. Yeah, so the aeroplane's probably coming in for a landing, because I presume there is only so high Sue could go before breathing would become an issue. Mm. I wonder where that plane's heading. Where's the LaGuardia? From this, I I wouldn't have a clue from this angle. I mean, it may have just took off, it may just be coming down, you know. It doesn't look like it's just took off, does it? Mm. It does look like it's coming in for a descent, but... Not living in New York, 
and I couldn't be bothered researching it. I don't know where... I'm trying to think of driver parallel lines now. Right, because it could be JFK. Yeah. So it could be any number of New York airports that it's heading to, I suppose. Um, the last I remember, Attilan was in the blue area of the moon. Um, so I've got no idea when it moved. Yeah. Well, it's probably in some big event. In Avengers vs. X-Men, they were on the blue side of the moon and it was just... And Attilan was still there? Wasn't it abandoned? Was it? Yeah, something like that. Right, okay. Did we mention that when we covered Avengers vs. X-Men and I've just forgotten? No idea. Right, okay, fair enough. Um, page 8. I do remember Sue being made Queen of the Uhari in an issue by Jonathan Hickman. Yay me. Mm-hmm. Continuity <laughs> reference that I got. Congratulations. Uh, page 9. I really did like the scene with Medusa and Sue talking about having kids and having a drink together. Mm. Which just felt like something two women would do. It was great. Knocking back some champagne. Why not? Yeah. Two queens, and not of the Ian McKellen type. <laughs> uh, page 10. Tong, Kor, Tug, and Mick are the Moloids I mentioned last issue, who were endeared of the Ben. Oh, apparently the Ben rescued them from a forgotten city. This is what you told me earlier on, isn't it? Yeah. Have Marvel forgotten how to do footnotes, or is Braveheart just lazy? I have no idea. Why is Tug a disembodied in- head? Um... Because why not? What was what's wrong with a little footnote? They're explaining that to me. Because because you should be reading Hickman's run. And the whole point of Marvel <laughs> now is that I don't have to. In every other respect, this, it doesn't well, matter. Well, no, no, no. It's just he's like that now. So yeah, I do like that they they're wearing FF uniforms as well, and they're number ten, eleven, and twelve. They're all numbered. Yeah, are they, are all of them got FFF uniforms. Because yeah, Valeria six, right? And Franklin's five. five, right? I did not notice that. Yeah, excellent, well done. I did not spot that. Mm. Okay. Um, page 11 through 13. She-Hulk and the Thing hang out and punch stuff. And they, they have a really good relationship, don't they? They mm. get along really well. I have to say, I don't know why this scene was three pages, nor why Ben shouted his way through it, but it was cute and funny how she kept throwing little bottles at Ben and his sausage fingers couldn't handle them, so he kept getting soaked with water. Alarid's Thing is very Kirby-ish. Yes, but his, his She-Hulk's very masculine. Hmm. Which I wasn't fond of, because Burns' She-Hulk was very feminine, while still being obviously very powerful. Mm. Whereas this, she is quite a masculine woman in this, isn't she? I kind of liked it, because if you think about it, why does Bruce Banner turn into the Hulk? Because it's such a massive difference, and yet She-Hulk and Jennifer Walters... Well, Jennifer Walters was a five-foot-nothing, mousy, kind of quiet, skinny girl. Yeah. So the She-Hulk's... Bruce Banner was the equivalent, male yeah. equivalent of that, and yet turned into the Hulk. Yeah, alright. Okay, fair enough. It's just an artistic... What's it? That? There's, yeah. there's no, you know, there's no point getting in a fight about it. Artistic merit. Yeah. Uh, artistic difference of opinion. Page 14, I have no idea about Vil Wu and Orno. And after reading this page, I still have no idea about Vil Wu and Orno. No. Because they don't say anything, do they? They just sit there looking at each other. Just go pop, pop, pop and bubbles, go yeah. for a fishbowl. So, yeah, no idea about that. Mm. Page 15, I had trouble believing Johnny was this stupid. Yeah, but I liked it. <laughs> that he's gone to Darla to ask her to be part of the new FF. And because all the blood's rushed to other parts of his body, yeah. he's now completely forgotten why he's here. And he's got a note, actually, on his phone, ask somebody about the thing. That's no help. And then he asks her. And then he asks her, "Do you like the thing?" And she's like, "Yeah, he's all right, I guess. Not as good as me, right?" No. Okay, I've done it. (laughs) I know someone who knows something about the thing. Yeah, it's like 
I, I didn't get that Johnny was that stupid. But it was funny, so alright, maybe we'll give it a pass for comedy. Uh, page 16, Alex Power used to be in Power Pack. I have no idea where the rest of them are. You're going to tell me now Bendy's killed them, aren't you? They were mercilessly butchered and eaten <laughs> like Marvel zombies. In Bendy's disassembled. Yeah. <laughs> they were disassembled, alright, and oh, Bendis liked to show us. David Finch's artwork didn't leave anything to the imagination. As they ripped a six-year-old girl to shreds. Yeah. Excellent comics, eh? Uh, pages 19 through 10, 20, 20. Reed and Scott talking to each other and reaching an agreement was a really good scene, generally. But I was especially fond of Reed's rationale here. Uh, it's not as much as leaving the Earth unprotected. After all, there's the Avengers and the X-Men, although they may end up fighting with each other, and tons of other super people. The Future Foundation, however, only the Fantastic Four can protect the FF. I liked that because it's not like the four haven't left Earth to go and journey the negative zone or in space before, and it also gives this book its title. FF could just as easily stand for Future Foundation. Which it did in Hickman's room. Did it? Is that what Volume 1 was about? Yeah. Right, see, I never read any of that. All right, fair enough. For some reason, this comic has exactly the same letters page as Fantastic Four number one. Yeah. I did not understand that at all. There must be something going on there that completely left me on the island um, I thought it was another good first issue albeit a little bit more expositional and talky than the last one mm. but I found that necessary because I had no idea about any of this having not followed Hickman's run it's a tonal contrast from the sister book but if you're going to have two books I think I prefer them to be tonally different there are also parts of a whole as the title implied but as the issue progresses, they both diverge quite well, justifying both titles' existence. When the FF get home, though, I wouldn't be bothered if one of the books is cancelled. Yeah. To make it just a Fantastic Four. All told, I thought this was a great beginning for Marvel's first family, and hopefully this will be another Burn or Wade Waringo run rather than a Miller hitch. Mm. What did you not like about it? I don't know. There just didn't seem to be enough of it. And it is all set up. FF on its own isn't as strong as Fantastic Four is. Do you not? Have you read all the others? No, just these two. Right, because so, it's interesting that, because it goes the other way. Well, as an issue one... Yes, I, I agree think, with you. I think FF relies very heavily on Fantastic Four, yes. which it shouldn't as an issue one. That's true. But as it's a little double bill, it's the pretty neat working together. As we read them here, it works perfectly. Mm. But yeah, if you're only reading FF... I will grant you there is probably a little bit of what, what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. All right, that's fair, fair criticism. If we criticised Uncanny Avengers for that, then fair play. Mm-hmm. I mean, true. I still enjoyed them. They do both. I think they both got better. Yeah. There's an issue of FF. Oh, God. I think it's number three, where S.H.I.E.L.D. goes on a date with Wyatt Wingfoot, and they're trying to get them both back together. And Bentley 23 spends the entire issue just trying to break them up. <laughs> and it's an hysterical issue. That's all that happens. It shouldn't be as good as it is. But it's brilliant. It's yeah. really good. And the Fantastic Four one is obviously the more FF Fantastic yeah. Four book. And again... Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Uh, Next week we'll be exploring whether this works again on its own as a standalone book as we cover The Superior Mm Spider-Man, where we'll be covering issues one and issues nine. Because, you know, it's Spider-Man. Let's cover two comics, eh? Yeah. One just isn't enough when you're doing Spider-Man. And let's not do two that make a whole story. uh... We are are doing. That is the beginning and end of a storyline. All right, okay. Trust me. Is it not the beginning and the end of a subplot? (laughs) <laughs> I hate it when you do stuff like this to me. It's not a new status quo. It is a status quo. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Um, and on that bombshell, 
<laughs> we didn't. So we batted three for three. Or six for six. Yeah. Because I've picked up for six different comics, and you've liked all of them. Mm-hmm. So far, which was your favourite? Uh, uh, Hulk, maybe. Really? Yeah. Okay, fair dues. All right. No, I can go with that. I can't remember what else we did. Uh, we did Captain America and Daredevil. I like Captain America and Daredevil. Hulk and Hawkeye. Oh, but Hawkeye. <laughs> Fantastic for an FF. So that's what we've done so far. You are allowed to say I liked them all. I liked them all. Excellent. It's a huge cop out, but the I'll let you do. Diplomatic side. Yeah. Of me, well, so why not? Let's be diplomatic for one. Um, good. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Like we say, next week's the Superior Spider-Man. Uh, don't forget to email in if you want to. That'd be nice. Otherwise, the email section's a bit dull if, yeah. if we don't have any emails. Try emails to ourselves. <laughs> yes, like Stanley used to do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to the people that did email in this week. It is always appreciated. And we will see you next time. Goodbye. Good. Good read. Now stretch. Stretch out. Stretching. Got it. Invisible force field coming online right now, sir. Hey, they can't hold on to the stretch much Johnny, longer. where's that temperature? It's hot. Sue's invisible. Force field. Flames on, sir. We did it. Good job, team. Ben, that was really great. The four of you are fantastic. What do you have to say for yourselves? It's clobbering time. Stretch all day and just obeys the way. A human torch burns the sky. Thinks this is clobbering time. The invisible girl is a fantastic and a human torch. Hey, here comes a thing. Go, fantastic Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. 
New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. And Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Fantastic Four. Fantastic Four. Fantastic Four. Yeah, it's all about the Fantastic Four.